I got my first cell phone for my 16th birthday. It was a Nokia flip phone with no internet access and restricted calling and texting functionality past 10 p.m. This was in September of 2007, just a couple of months after the original iPhone hit store shelves. Now, as a newly minted 16-year-old, I was just happy to have a cell phone to text my friends. The iPhone was really cool. The worship intern for my church's youth group had an iPhone on day one, but I didn't think the features of the iPhone were all that necessary. I was more than content with smashing a number multiple times to get a certain letter and doing this over and over and over again. The touchscreen of the iPhone and its big visual real estate was just bling. But I didn't hold that opinion for very long, though. Fast forward three years to 2010, and the original iPhone was now obsolete compared to the new iPhone 4. The curvy plastic design was gone, and the rectangular metallic body looked amazing. My middle brother Travis received an iPhone 3GS for his birthday, which is just a few weeks before mine. And as the older brother, I could not stand the injustice of my little brother having an iPhone before I did. Once the iPhone 4 was released, I went to the AT&T store and dropped $800 on the phone. $300 of it was the cost of the actual phone, and $500 of it was the security deposit I needed to pay because in order to buy this phone, I had to leave my parents' cell phone plan and start my own plan. And since I didn't have a credit score at the time, AT&T required a security deposit nearly twice as much as the phone I was buying cost. Now, I got that deposit back at the end of my first year, but in hindsight, my love for the iPhone and my unyielding desire to have one made me do something irrational and stupid. We open this season of Breaking the Digital Spell with a comparison of two dystopias, one from George Orwell and one from Aldous Huxley. Orwell believed that what we feared, such as the iron fist of totalitarianism and government control, would lead to our ruin, while Huxley believed that what we loved, our comfort, our leisure, our entertainment, and distraction, is what will ruin us. My love for the iPhone when I bought it didn't ruin me in the moment, although it certainly ruined my savings account. Seven years later, however, I think Huxley was onto something about what we love ruining us. And I think smartphones, while making our lives better, are simultaneously ruining them in the process. According to statista.com, it is expected that there will be 2.53 billion smartphone users in 2018, and that by 2019, that number is expected to climb to 2.71 billion, an increase of 180 million in the span of a single year. Now, those numbers are just estimates, but they show that the meteoric rise of smartphones shows no sign of slowing down anytime soon. And of that $2.71 billion projected for next year, 230 million of those users live in America, which comprises 68.4% of the entire American population. Nearly 7 out of every 10 Americans owns a smartphone. And the habits of those 7 out of 10 Americans are not good. We check our phones 74 times a day on average, and 85% of us use it while we're talking to friends and family. 
80% of us check our phone within an hour of getting up and going to bed. And within that hour, 35% of us can't even make it five minutes without checking our phone. This all applies to me as well. I am guilty of each and every one of these. To make things more depressing, 47% of us at one point in time or another, have tried to reduce our smartphone usage and cut back on the amount of screen time we have. But the icing on the cake is that of that 47% that tried to cut back, only 30% were actually able to do so successfully. Smartphone addiction is real, and smartphone manufacturers realize that while they're making an awesome product capable of doing many good and helpful things, they've also made a product that has a reliable track record of producing compulsive, addictive behaviors in its user base. It's why, with this most recent iOS update, Apple has included internal phone tracking capabilities to give you data about your phone usage, and, I might say, with more reliability and precision than similar apps did that came before it. Google has done the same thing with Android. The jury's still out on whether or not these measures will work or not, But just as we are starting to reach a point in society where we are really beginning to question social media's effects on us, we are really beginning to question our smartphones as well. To quote Tony Reinke from his outstanding book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. We are embodied creatures. That means that the way we use digital technology changes all of us, mentally, physically, and spiritually. Solomon warned us not to divorce our minds from our whole bodies, the very temptation of the touchscreen age. Study after study has shown that too much time on our phones has profound effects on our physical health, including, but not limited to, inactivity and obesity, stress and anxiety, sleeplessness and restlessness, bad posture and sore necks, eye strain and headaches, and hypertension and stress-induced shallow breathing patterns. The physical consequences of our unwise smartphone habits often go unnoticed because in the matrix of the digital world, we simply lose a sense of our bodies, our posture, our breathing, and our heart rates. Our overwhelming focus on projected images causes negligence with regard to our bodies. Now, I'm not going to belabor the point that smartphone addiction is a real and serious issue. Chances are you've felt its effects in your own life and need no reminder that you struggle to get away from your phone. And I'm not here to try and convince anyone to toss their phones out the window. This is a podcast about asking questions about the technology and media we take for granted and honestly assessing the full range of impact they have on our lives and how those impacts shape the way we think about God and love our neighbor. And it should go without stating, smartphones when properly used, are wonderful tools for Christians. The smartphone combines the access of the internet with the customization and features of digital text into something that you can literally hold in your hand. And this makes reading the Bible, listening to sermons, counseling a friend and praying for them long distance, researching subjects and articles online, all the more easier and doable. Phones can help us track our health, help us manage our time and our finances, and can store valuable information about our jobs and families and carry it with us on the go. Many of us couldn't do the jobs we do without our phones. My iPhone 7 Plus is the most important tool I have in managing the social media accounts I'm in charge of. And combined with my MacBook, my workflow is seamless and efficient because of it. 
We all know that our phones are used for legitimately good and praiseworthy things. The problem is that, just like television, just like the internet, and just like social media, you can't just adopt the good things about smartphones. You either adopt all of the things smartphones bring, good and bad, or you adopt none of these things. And the bad things that smartphones bring have not only physical consequences on us, but spiritual ones as well. In the previous episode that we did on social media, we ended that episode with the unanswered question of, why is it so hard to break away from social media? In many ways, it's almost impossible to talk about smartphones without talking about social media because social media's meteoric growth is parallel to smartphones' meteoric growth as well. Part of the reason why we can't break away from social media is because our smartphones are now so tailored to making social media as accessible as possible that wherever our smartphones go, Social media goes with us. It used to be that checking MySpace and Facebook required you to be at a computer, which was anchored to a desk and not something you could check at any moment of the day. Computers anchored to desks are not known for their mobility. Smartphones empowered social media with the mobility it needed to fully saturate our lives and society. And where social media tries to convince you that through timelines and algorithms, you can handle an endless waterfall of content, smartphones convince you that you can and should have access to that waterfall of content 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Social media combined with smartphones can be a good thing, but it can also neutralize us under the allure of the waterfall of content that our screens put out and make appealing. This quote from Tony Runke is lengthy, but listen to his commentary on C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters and ask yourself if you've experienced what he describes as the nothing strategy. What I am coming to understand is that this impulse to pull the lever of a random slot machine of viral content is the age-old tactic of Satan. C.S. Lewis called it the, quote, nothing strategy in his screw tape letters. It is the strategy that eventually leaves a man at the end of his life looking back in lament. Quote, I now see that I spent most of my life doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. End quote. This, quote, nothing strategy is, quote, very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. And the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off, end quote. Lewis's warning about the dreary flickering in front of our eyes is a loud prophetic alarm to the digital age. We are always busy, but always distracted, diabolically lured away from what is truly essential and truly gratifying. Led by our unchecked digital appetites, we manage to transgress both commands that promise to bring us focus to our lives. We fail to enjoy God. We fail to love our neighbor. 
And to be clear, this nothing strategy Reinke and Lewis talk about is not solely social media's fault. Push notifications have increased in pervasiveness from all sorts of apps, all with the aim of distracting you away from the real world to the screen. I know in moments of boredom, I'm just as prone to check the stock market as I am to check social media, and my phone buzzes the same for a text message in the same way it buzzes for a stupid push notification from Amazon, enticing me to spend money on something I don't need. My point is that smartphones, and dumb phones to be sure, are tools of immense usefulness and tools of immense distraction, and we cannot use smartphones for good without exposing ourselves to the possibility of crippling distraction. And this crippling distraction profoundly affects how we think about God and the way we love our neighbor. In our conclusions, part one episode, we ended the episode with the idea that television and the internet paved the way for secularism to gain a greater influence in the church, not to mention society as a whole. With the combination and global acceptance of smartphones and social media, we are now on the other side of that influence, having run its course in our culture, and we live in a distracted age made possible by powerful computers in our hands that feed us limitless amounts of distraction. And make no mistake, this distracted, content-saturated age shortchanges and short-circuits our ability to think about God in addition to influencing what we believe about Him. As Alan Noble, author of the insanely good Disruptive Witness, explains, Modern media technology focuses largely on two goals— capturing our attention, and gathering our data. While the latter has troubling implications for our privacy, the former has a direct effect on our ability to encounter and contemplate the holy. Innumerable gadgets, websites, channels, streaming services, songs, films, and biometric wristbands vie for our attention. Without our attention, their existence is unjustified. So, each piece of technology we own does what it can to make us pay attention to it, like an overly eager child tugging on our sleeve, begging, look what I can do, Dad. It is not that every spare moment is fought for. Our technology covets every glance. Flashing lights, vibrations, bells ringing, little red dots, email alerts, notifications, pop-up windows, commercials, news stickers, browser tabs, everything is designed to capture our attention. And there is good reason to believe that technology will only continue to progress in this direction. Barring a catastrophic event or a drastic shift in the structure and goals of modern technology, we can expect that for the foreseeable future, our society will be, in part, defined by technology designed to continually distract us. Allen continues on to summarize the work of American cognitive scientist Daniel J. Levinson and the implications of multitasking on our minds. And how all the distractions we live with, again, mostly caused by phones, give us mental fatigue. Alan again. 
We are addicted to novelty, and, as with most addictions, it takes a toll on our bodies. We become mentally fatigued, scrambled, as Levitin describes it. In this way, the modern mind is often not prepared to engage in dialogue about personally challenging ideas, particularly ones with deep implications. The fatigued mind would rather categorize a conversation about God as another superficial distraction, requiring little cognitive attention than a serious conversation that ought to cost us, at least cognitively. If you'll recall from episode 5, we discussed how God, in revealing himself through the spoken word to the authors of scripture who then codified it in the written word, bound his revelation to a medium that values high levels of cognitive interaction. I'm not going to repeat the how do you read a book exercise again because I've done it for several episodes now, but reading a book requires abstract thinking, contemplation, focused meditation, and other cognitively intense activities. And if the God of Christianity was to be understood through the medium of the Word, then this God must value abstract thinking, contemplation, and focused meditation as well, and desires that to be reflected in how we worship Him. Smartphones short-circuit all of that. Because smartphones are the means through which a million distractions are presented to us that keep us from abstract thinking, contemplation, and focused meditation. This is another longer quote, but listen to Alan one more time. Multitasking forces us to make millions of tiny decisions. What song should I listen to? Should I share this article? Should I check that text message? How should I reply to this email? And this wears us out cognitively. The result is that when it comes time for us to make important decisions, we are too exhausted and are more likely to make mistakes. Alternatively, we may avoid making a decision altogether. When there are an almost infinite number of options, it's hard to choose just one. Decision overload is as much a problem as it is for digital multitasking. A good friend of mine once explained that although he believed there is a God, he didn't know which religious account of God is true because there are so many different religions. When I asked him why he didn't try to discover the truth, he replied that it was just too overwhelming. A distracted and secular age does this to us. We are cognitively overwhelmed by the expanding horizon of possible beliefs. Our frantic and flattened culture is not conducive to wrestling with thick ideas, ideas with depth, complexity, and personal implications. It is a culture of immediacy, simple emotions, snap judgments, optics, and identity formation. In such a world, is it any wonder that Christians so often speak past their listeners? I cannot stress enough how valuable Alan Noble's book, Disruptive Witness, is, because it's one of the first books of its kind to connect the consequences of a world saturated with distractions and how Christians live faithfully in that context. The result is that the gospel message doesn't fall on deaf ears when we proclaim it. It falls on distracted ears. The gospel becomes just one more source of distraction and noise amid a backdrop of endless distraction and noise. And our smartphones contribute a significant amount to that noise and distraction we experience in our lives. And it's not always pointless distraction either. Maybe that email you need to read is legitimately important. Maybe there's a situation that you're monitoring and you need to communicate with others about. Or maybe you're checking your bank accounts after seeing some strange transactions show up. Again, our smartphones are useful tools, but they're also tools of immense distraction. 
and this immense distraction distracts us from thinking about God and influences the way we think about God. God is no longer a subject we ought to give the fullest amount of our attention to. Instead, he is one possible option of belief amid a myriad of other beliefs we encounter in the waterfall of content put forth by our phones. Thinking about God is the same as thinking about sports or entertainment or pop culture or anything else that you can think about because the way our phones deliver our content to us characterizes God and thinking about God as being as equally important as checking something off of a task list. Thinking about God is rendered insignificant. But if you believe in God, What do you believe about him? Do you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God or solely the writings of its authors passed off as having a divine source? Do you believe God created Adam and Eve or that their account is fictional, allegorical, or metaphorical? Do you believe the flood of Noah was literal or figurative? Do you believe the signs and wonders in Exodus actually happened or that they're just exaggerations in the accounts of Moses' clash with Pharaoh? Do you believe Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time or just a man or that he never actually existed? Do you believe Jesus was actually crucified as the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem his people from the curse of sin Or was Jesus crucified for being a political troublemaker? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back one day to judge the living and the dead? Or is our charge as Christians simply to create heaven on earth for our fellow man? Like Alan just said a bit ago, a distracted and secular age does this to us. We are cognitively overwhelmed by the expanding horizon of possible beliefs. And if we are to live as faithful Christians in this culture, we must take this into account as we proclaim the gospel. We must be, as the title of Alan's book suggests, disruptive witnesses. Smartphones and social media aren't going anywhere, but they're not the only sources contributing to the distracted age we now live in as Christians. On the next episode of Breaking the Digital Spell, we set our eyes towards the horizon of new technology and media, some of which already exist and is growing in acceptance and usage, and some of which, quite literally, covers our eyes so that all we can see is whatever digital world we want to live in. Breaking the Digital Spell is produced by Andrew Akins, who has been instrumental in making this podcast sound good week after week, as well as giving his constructive feedback on the content of the show as well. He helps shape this show more than you might realize, and he deserves a ton of credit for making this show what it is. This podcast is also made possible thanks to my wife, Melissa, who not only reads the quotes for each episode, but is willing to read several lengthy quotes for episodes like this one. Again, she also shapes this podcast more than you might realize, and she deserves a ton of credit as well. I cannot recommend enough the two books we heavily referenced in this episode, Tony Runke's 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You and Alan Noble's Disruptive Witness. Both books are absolute must-reads, and this podcast also wouldn't exist without them as well. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can like our Facebook page and follow the show on Twitter at Digital Spell, where I will be posting articles and other writings relevant to each week's episode. And please, wherever you're listening to this, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. I personally like five-star reviews, but if you want to leave a lower-than-five-star review, I promise to read it and take it seriously. My name is Austin, and together, we are breaking the digital spell. <laughs>